that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola with my partner in crime, the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle. It is a beautiful March day here in the New York, New Jersey area, hot on the heels of everyone's favorite Italian-American holiday, St. Joseph's Day, which uh, I just literally ate the last sfinchy that I had in the fridge. So, How, how come of... you ate the last sfinchy, not the last April? I ate the last April yesterday. Yeah, sure. I did. No, no, I, last. Yeah, no, no, no. no. Listen, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the truth. Listen, same bad time, same bad channel. You know me. I am a Zeppeli guy. I always uh, Zeppeli's my default. I love custard cream. I like pasta chotz. Anything with the custard cream, sign me up. I could just eat that out of the bag. But when I go to these, you know, pastry shops, I like to support both. So I buy them and I bring them to people, whatnot. This year, because I really didn't feel like going all the way to Arthur Avenue. It's like twenty minutes, maybe 15, 20 minutes for me. So I tried this pastry shop that I've passed like a few times up the street. It looks like a gelato store. It's called Pane Gelato. It's like a minute and a half from my house. And I'm like, eh, I'm just going to roll the dice. I called them. I got an Italian on the other end of the phone. I said, do you have Zeppoli, Sfinci? He said, absolutely. It was almost like insulting that I would ask. I went up, and this place was amazing. It was just this wonderfully authentic Italian pastry and gelato shop. It's got a cafe. It's got, he does uh, the, like, um, what do you call it? Sfinci bread. He does arancini. He's from Sicily. He's from, uh, I think, near Agrigento. And it was just the best, most pleasant surprise. And let me tell you, I do prefer Zeppole. I love the custard cream. But this guy's Sfinci's, his cannoli cream, I mean, I, it, it, it figures because he is Sicilian. It's one of the best I've ever had in Sicily or the United States. I'm, I'm a total convert to this guy's cannoli right now. We should go there for coffee. Yeah, we should. When you get to come up here, uh, either if we're having meetings or whatnot or just to hang out, we should definitely go. We, you could spend the whole day there. You would. It's like the kind of place my father-in-law plays cards in. Can we have a little bit of transparency? I think we have a lot of listeners who are curious how the sausage is made. This is the second time we are taping this episode. We taped this episode yesterday. I thought it went very well, and I am far from a positive person. <laughs> and whatever happened in Zoom world or whatever it is, it was lost. It just disappeared. So John frantically and Stephanie try to find it and try to save it. But I'm going to tell you why it disappeared. Because I was zapped by the Maloike. I had a Maloike zapping. And the reason is, on the last episode, we were rehashing our St. Joseph uh, weekend, if you want to call it St. Joseph weekend uh, events. And I spoke that I had gone to an outstanding, outstanding, top of the line, authentic as they come, uh, St. Joseph's Table, that's done by the Sicilian community in Lodi, New Jersey. The St. Joseph Society, their fearless leader, Antonino Pilato, who's an out, outstanding leader, puts on an outstanding event, yada, yada, yada. That's all nice. And then I said on Monday night, I had gone to a St. Joseph's Table in Nutley, New Jersey, which is also outstanding, very enjoyable, Father Tom Castro. And when I got there, it was a packed house. I spoke to the um, caterer who was an Italian-American, actually born in Italy, um, born out, born outside of Conza. I think it's Santa, Sant'Angelo di Conza is the town. That's by you, Stephanie. I think it's Santa, Sant'Andrea or Sant'Angelo di Conza. And we're chit-chatting, and I talk about my pine nut allergy. That's why I talk to 
Any any restaurant I go to, any catering facility, I have to talk to the maitre d' because a little bit of pine nuts and I'm dead. It's fatal. It's my kryptonite. Don't call an ambulance. Call a hearse. So the caterer said to me, which was Ralph's in uh, Nutley, f- famous for their pizza. Ralph's outstanding. Pasquale, the owner of Ralph's, said to me, "You should hit the buffet. You should hit the the uh, food first because there's pine nuts with the pasta cusarde, and I'm afraid of cross contamination and you getting very sick." And ultimately dying. So he told me that I had to hit the, the uh, sterno heated uh, metal containers of food first. And I said, Pascal, I don't want to go. I would rather not eat. And the reason I don't want to go is I have 300 Italians staring at the food. And if I'm the first online, I'm going to get the horns. for having hit in the buffet line first, who are you? Why are you on the first one online to get food? He goes, no, 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 don't be ridiculous. I said, you know as well as me. I'm, I'm being very, it's a very honest conversation. I said, I don't want to go up there because they're going to turn it into some kind of like federal incident. Uh, who was he to go up there? Or he couldn't wait to eat or Mortarafam or whatever. Sure enough, he tells me, just go up and get your food. I go up and get my food before anybody else gets up there. I don't go 20 yards headed toward my table. And not one, but two people ask me, how come you got to eat first? <laughs> Danielle Ferrante. Now, Danielle Ferrante was one of them. And she swears up and down. She listens to every episode. And this is our little exam to see if she does. Because she was the first one to ask me, how come I went up there first? Uh, and Rosina Romano was the second one. And I know both of them. So if the two people I know asked me, how come I was the one to go up there and get my food first? The other 298 people in the room were shooting me my loike from every direction. That is my theory on this. So that's why we had to re-record. Yes. The Maloki Avengers is that John calls them. Yeah. As I added them yesterday, because, of course, Italians are in a panic. Like, I'm going to get one extra meatball than they are. <laughs> um, I think it was. I think I got zapped by all sides. And that's we got zapped yesterday. It's probably true. It's the Italians. And for those of you who are out there in Medigan land, who, who are learning from your own people about what we say on the podcast, it wasn't like, I'm so hungry. It was like, who are you to be up there online while I'm sitting down here? I'm like that, though. I have to admit, like, I get very, I, I hate lines. I have that Italianness in me. And if there's a creative way to cut a line, I'm the first one to jump on and try to do it. I get aggravated when people beat me to that. Nicole always calls me out on it. She's like, what is wrong with you if somebody goes ahead? Like, it's not going to end your day. It's not going to end your life. You're not going to lose out. But I don't know. It just, it bugs me waiting in a line, it's just, it's got to be, you know. I think the Italian, I don't think the, no, I disagree with you, John. I think it did not, does not have to do with Italians with waiting online. It has to be, who are you that you got to go? Who do you think you are that you went ahead of everybody else? <laughs> yeah, that's it hand in hand, right? So I think what I need to do is go up there with somebody. You could put on the medical code and carry a white box with like a red cross on it because then they will know it's dietary and they're not going to want to jinx themselves and they won't say anything. <laughs> You'll have like I'll go up doctor. there in peace. And you go up there and say, I have to eat first I'm his doctor. <laughs> That's like, if anybody else wants to walk up as my doctor, we have some physicians and nurses who listen to the show. If you want to put on the white coat, we can go up there to eat together. And then I'll be left alone. <laughs> a living medical alert bracelet. I have to walk like a new book is Yeah. That's like when I when I fly, if I'm with somebody who needs to board early, I'm like super excited because I hate I, I'm very anxious to be the first person to board, get my luggage in place. And if somebody's got, you know, oh, I broke my leg, I'm on a crutch. Or, I'm like, this is great. I, I push them to the front. As soon as they call for anybody, even if they don't need the extra help, if they don't want it, I'm like, no, we got to do this. We got to be. It's the idea. 
of if you're waiting online, I think they're hand in hand. If you're waiting online, you're not somebody, right? And if somebody goes ahead of you, why are they somebody and you're not? I think it's a very complicated dynamic of Tuna Psyche Sono Io, and it just it drives me crazy. I should get a Numbrolino. <laughs> like the Pope? Yeah. Yeah, they should carry Numbrolino over me. That's why he's that's going right. up first. That's but right. then figure yeah. out why I have a Numbrolino. That's the only Italian that can cut a line with nobody saying anything as a priest. I don't think so. I think oh, they're comment. So. You think the priest gets? They'll say they might. They won't say something to. I don't, I don't know. Oh, Father, you're the first to go up there. Yeah, well, you're the priest, Father. Yeah, that's you know. Go that, ahead, Father. Be about under their breath. I mean, some of them will, depending on if they like the breath. priest or not. Yeah, I, I could see if he's Father Fun, like the priest who's like the cruise director at the parish. Yeah, everybody loves the that. Father they like, go, the father, the priest they go on cruises with, they go to Canada with, and they go to like, <laughs> exactly. you know, uh, see Jerusalem in nine days, and the yeah. many, the many. There's, there's always the priest who acts, who really should be working for parole tours. <laughs> father never I, home, father yeah. here, father there, father everywhere. That's so true, and that's popular. Old ladies love those priests. Yeah, they oh, they oh, make oh, out good because they get the funerals when they when they kick off if they don't like the pastor. Oh, get Father Tony, he was so nice. Yeah, we had such a wonderful time back. in Hawaii, the cruise in Alaska. We did the Caribbean with Father. He said mass every day. He's such a nice man. <laughs> yeah, Mary, so make sure when I go, you get him. We can name 10 priests like that, we know. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, you get some cruise lines. It used to be all of them, but I think now it's not all of them. They get priest freebies because the priest says mass every day. Is that right? Yeah, sure. I mean, especially when you have a South American and Filipino crew. How about that? Who are super Catholic? You need the priest on board, so they'll say, "Okay, Father." I knew a priest who used to go with his mom all the time. They they comped him freebie, and, and he said, said mass, mass in the, the which I like. I, that's a positive. Pat loves all that stuff. <laughs> yes, you do. Pat goes on a cruise and goes to mass every day. I can nice. see that. Oh, yeah. you know who used to have nice chapels on their boats? The French. Really? They said the Normandy had a beautiful chapel on it. I did not know that. How do we go from macaroni with sardines <laughs> to, to the, the Normandy, Normandy boat chapel? Hawaii, now we're going to basketball. That's what the Italian-American podcast is. Then John's going to shut me off. And then I could I could probably be playing fiddly, what are they called? Piddly stink? What's the Tiddly wings. Tiddly wings for the next half hour because John will be talking basketball. Serious conversation. Well, if you want to see how the sausage may tell them what you're really doing right now. No, don't out me. Uh, oh, no, don't out you. No, Do it. don't, John, It's a don't test. It. It's a test. No, I had a, someone gave me a Bastida for a preliminary test. It's Bastida testing time. It's a sample. I would never violate the fasting of Lent yeah. and the sanctity of a Bastida at Easter. But I do get a special dispensation if you want me to test yours. If you want to do a dry run, you want me to give it an analysis, tell you the pros, the cons, where you can improve, what you've done right. I have a special Vatican dispensation for that. <laughs> you always said if you ever became a saint, you'd want to be the patron saint of Bastida. Yeah, yeah, I'd have a busted in my hand. That'd be like my symbol. Like St. Anthony's got like the bread and the lilies. <laughs> yeah. Our Lady Mount Carmel's got the scapula. St. Lucy's got the eyes. I'd have a hymn written with the word Bastida. I don't know what Bastida rhymes with. <laughs> I can't. It's gonna be a, it's a long one to figure out. I don't know. If you can write a hymn with the word Bastida in it, you will get the commission for the hymn for when I <laughs> beatification process. <laughs> you know, we were talking about uh Oh, you know what? Hold, I don't mean to. You know, Saint Catherine has the wheel. Yeah, I have a giant Bastida. I hold it just like her. That's how I picture you in my mind. Ladies and gentlemen, go out and Google Saint Catherine of Alexandria martyr, and you're going to see her holding a big wheel, and I'm going to have a big pie the same size. Yeah, I always picture you like that. I can see the statue in my mind. As a matter of wow. fact, I think it would fit. I think you should replace your Bastida seller and your presepio with you. That's what I would. 
recommend. We can get a custom perceptual piece made of me with the Bastille. Yeah, I think so. I think that'd be really great. This is sick. Now we went to Bastia to Hawaii, <laughs> on cruises, basketball. Yeah, let's get to what we came for today because it's March. It's a beautiful, beautiful week out here in New York and New Jersey. And uh, in watching the big news of the week, I was able to discern an Italian connection to the March Madness tournament that's going on right now. It's obvious that, you know, March is a great month. You got St. Patrick's Day and St. Joseph's Day and Easter is approaching and spring is coming. And March Madness seems to take off like a rocket every year around this time and everybody gets excited. And uh, the big news, I think, at least last week, was the number 16 seed, Fairleigh Dickinson University, at which I might add I spent uh, two separate semesters during my college career, my, my meandering college career. Um, but Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey, beautiful little campus in like uh, – Madison Florham Park area and one up in Teaneck, they came in completely, completely dark horse and uh, unseated the number one seed Purdue. And it made obviously news all over the place, maybe the biggest upset in the history of this tournament. And uh, I have always noted that Fairleigh Dickinson was started by the San Martino family, a uh, uh, husband and wife from New Jersey who founded and funded this uh, little school in the, in the heart of New Jersey. So a little bit of an Italian connection. What I didn't realize, and what brings us to our guest today, is that there's perhaps another Italian connection at the root of all of this March Madness that I knew absolutely nothing about, and uh, I'm really, really glad that today's guest was brought to my attention and our attention, because Mike DeLucia is a writer, a screenwriter, uh, a creator, a producer, and uh, I think it's safe to say after our lost conversation with him yesterday, a sports nut like I am myself. And amongst his many writings is the book Madness, which tells the story of a heretofore, I think, completely unknown Italian-American who, uh, Mike would argue, revolutionized the game of basketball and may be the man responsible for March Madness to begin with. So, Mike, welcome back to the Italian-American podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad. I, when uh, when you called me and told me that yesterday was lost and you said, listen, I'm sorry, you know, we have to do this again. And I said, hey, we're going to talk about Italians again. You said, yeah. I said, okay, we could do this every day. It's what we do every day and we love it. And uh, it's a good opportunity to actually dig deeper into what we've been discussing because you've got a great topic here. You, you've written a bunch of stuff. Tell us a little bit about how you got into writing because it's a very interesting story, and how you eventually got to this particular story, Madness. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, I started off in life as, uh, you know, I grew up in the Bronx in the 1960s and 70s. And, um, and you know, I did all of the street games associated with growing up during that era, stickball and wiffle ball and softball and stoop ball and all those kinds of, uh, you know, that, those kinds of games. And uh, But I saw a show when I was about 14 years old and I looked at the stage and I looked at the actors and I said, I want to be that. I want to do that. And, and I, and I went, I went, I went to school in Manhattan. I was studying acting, but I got married really young. I had a family very young and got involved with a, you know, with a business and a house. 
and found it to be extremely difficult. So um, I said, I'm going to pull a Sylvester Stallone. I came up with this idea and I said, I'm going to be like Stallone. I'm going to write a movie, even though I never had, I had never written anything before. And I'm going to star in it. I'm not going to sell it unless I play the lead, which, you know, is extremely funny right now, but to the 20, you know, to a 23 year old mind, that seemed like a very solid plan. So uh, we went to the family dinner and, you know, we, I was married, went to my parents' house, you know, for Sunday dinner. And, and I explained the story to them and, you know, what I'm going to do. And my father said, that's a great idea. Uh, you know, what are you going to write about? And I said, I have no idea. He said, I have the perfect person for you to write about the greatest basketball player that ever lived. I said, who's that? Hank Luisetti. So I said, Hank Luisetti, if he's the greatest basketball player that ever lived, how come I never heard of him? He said, that's why it's such a great story. He, he, he absolutely changed basketball. He, he revolutionized the entire game in the 1920s or the 1930s. I read about him at one time, fascinating story. So it piqued my interest that, like I said, at the time I had a business, I got somebody to, I had a, I had a wise potato chip franchise in, in South Bronx. And I literally hired somebody through the company to run my route for two weeks while I went downtown and tried to find out about this guy. Mm. So I went downtown every day. I, I, I went through the microfilms again, I was looking through the, the through, you know, starting at the back of the paper, you know, looking at the sports and, all of a sudden, Luisetti's name started popping up, Luisetti, Luisetti. And the more I read, the more fascinated I, I, I got. I, I said, this guy, this guy was a legend. He, he, he was, an, I mean, I found periodicals. I found articles in Sports Illustrated. There were comics written about him. He, he was the first nationally known basketball superstar in this country. And, and he, he, he single-handedly revolutionized the game of basketball. So when I say, like my father said to me, that the, the most influential, the greatest basketball world play, player of all time, I mean it. And I don't mean to say, you know, if you look at, you know, Michael Jordan, you, you can't compare people from different eras. You can't take somebody from the 90s and compare them to somebody in the 30s. It's impossible to do. The only way you can do that, you can make a comparison, is if two players are playing in the same era against the same teams and they play each other. You know, you have a better argument to say, well, you know, who is the greatest? But without Hank Luisetti, basketball would have taken many, many more years to become what it was. And I could explain to you, basketball was just basically a filler sport between football and baseball season. They tried getting uh, professional leagues together and they failed because basketball at that time period was a boring game. It was defense based, shooting with two hands, passing with two hands. They weren't fast breaking. The emphasis was on defense until Hank Lewis Eddy comes along. He's 50 years ahead of his time. He revolutionizes the game with the running one-handed shot. He's the first person to shoot that way with accuracy. He was the first person to dribble behind his back. He was one of the first people to do fast breaks. He was the first person to score 50 points in one game by himself in an era when the average points scored in a whole basketball game was 30 points. Wow. He was an absolute juggernaut. And the people that saw him play, when you read those articles that I read 
uh, from Sports Illustrated and from the New York, you know, from the Daily News and the New York Times, and they talked about this guy and what he did. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's it was interesting to me because you know, as Pat said, we we had a, this conversation or version of it yesterday, and I, you know, when we finish an episode, usually I preserve the audio and then I go out and start doing some visual research, you know, images for the show page and stuff like that. And I was shocked to see how much stuff was created around him in the '30s when he was active, and you know, there was no NBA, right? He he precedes the NBA. I guess his senior year by ten years, so he played at Stanford, right? I mean, he, yeah. he was a, it was a college athlete. He never was a professional basketball player at the paid level, right? Well, there was no NBA. Again, they tried to get it going. Um, there was a guy by the name of Ned Irish. This is, you know, really the, the you know the uh, where the story crescendos uh, because it, you know throughout the entire screenplay or through the novel. You know, we're building toward this because there was a lot of resistance to the one-handed shot. Uh, you know, Nat Holman, uh, you know, the the coach of, of uh, NYU said, I think it was NYU, it could have been CCNY, I forget which one. You know, he, he was like, I'll quit coaching if I have to teach one-handed shots to win. There's only one way to do it, the way we do it in New York, with two hands. There was a lot of, of, of pushback saying it wasn't real basketball, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, you have this kid who's who had the the grace or the blessing of his coach John Bunn the legend John Bunn who was brought to Stanford to bring them a West Coast championship that's why Stanford hired him because you know academically Stanford was great but they wanted to improve their basketball program so they bring in John Bunn John Bunn uh brings in this new crop of players uh, uh um, Hank Lewis said he went to the same high school as Joe DiMaggio uh, they were they were actually friends. I have a picture of the two of them together at a at a San Francisco Seals game because that's where he's from. And when they brought Luisetti on, he led the freshman team to an undefeated season. In fact, every major team that Luisetti played on won the championship. That's how great he was. He uh, and then there was a promoter from New York, a guy by the name of Ned Irish. Ned Irish says, "You know what? I want to take the best team in the West." And I want to put them against the best team in the East for this for this showdown at Madison Square Garden. This is during uh, holiday week. Uh, there wasn't a lot going on, so all the papers, you know, jumped out. This and that's to give you an idea. LIU was considered at that time the greatest basketball team ever assembled. They hadn't lost a game in a couple of seasons. They were so good that the United States Olympic team asked them. LIU as a team to represent the United States in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. But there were a lot of Jewish people on that team, and they took a vote, and they decided to boycott those games. So, But that's just to give you an idea how good they were. They had a 6'10 center. They were a juggernaut. And to give an audience just a little perspective, because I, I, I don't know, LIU doesn't have the same panache anymore. It's in Long, it's Long Island University it's got campus in Long Island, but I think the original was in Brooklyn, right? Yes. Because I, I used to go there to watch basketball games in the Brooklyn campus. Right. Um, so, so yeah, they, they, they expected, everyone expected that LIU was going to destroy this team, this, this little team from, from Stanford who was, you know, making waves uh, so that, you know, the papers were writing about it. They were making up little cartoons of which I have some, I have a lot of memorabilia on this. Um, and, uh, they sell out Madison Square Garden. 
Georgetown, uh, the first game was between Georgetown and NYU. And, you know, that was just a preliminary before the big event, which was LIU versus Stanford. Hank Lewis Eddy comes in to Madison Square Garden in this packed house and absolutely destroys LIU. He completely dismantles them. They had never seen anything. They had no answers for the things he was doing because they had never seen basketball played that way before. The way the, the reporters were talking about it, they, they were saying that he would jump in the air and he would stay in the air so long it looked like he defied gravity. He, he was he was shooting the ball from everywhere on the court, and he was ambidextrous. He could put it up with left hand, his right hand. They said sometimes it appeared as though he wasn't even looking at the basket. He was, of course, the leading scorer in that game. Hank Lewis said he broke uh, the, the crowd. The, the New York crowd was literally giving Lewis Eddy standing ovations when, they, when, when, he would, when he would sink one. Wow. So you're talking about the New York crowd cheering for the other team only because they had never seen anything as magnificent as that happen on a basketball court. So how good was he? He was All-American every year. He broke scoring records every year. He was the first person to score 50 points in one game, first person to shoot dribble behind his back. He was the first basketball player inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. The second person overall, the first person was Dr. James Naismith, the creator of basketball. But they honored Luisetti as the first player, the second person and the first player to be inducted into the whole thing. He was so famous when he graduated that MGM signed him to a movie deal. He actually played himself in a movie opposite Betty Grable called Campus Confessions. That's celebrity. Yeah, he, they gave him $10,000 in 1938. $10,000 to play that role. Wow. It's an incredible, incredible story. Um, you know, Lewis said he was, 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 everybody in the country knew who he was, and it wasn't a fluke. He came back every year. Ned Irish brought them back every year, and they beat everybody every year. They, they just ran through the New York teams, and uh, they created this buzz. They laid the foundation. He was at the center of it. He was, he was the talent. He was the guy who made everybody want to go to basketball games. People started to imitate him. They'd started to shoot like him. They started to shoot with one hand. They started to pass with one hand. They started to shoot on the run. He changed the way the game was played. Scoring increased. People wanted to see basketball. It became the hottest ticket in town. And it, it, the, the year after he graduated, it officially began. But it was going on from that first game in 1936. That's when it kind of unofficially began. But then it officially became something uh, in 1939 uh, after he had graduated. And we didn't hear about him anymore because there was no NBA for Lewis Eddy to go to. Now, he goes on to act in Hollywood in what I'm, I'm assuming is not the highest grossing film of the year because he never does it again. Right. He does one and done. It, it's awful. It's an awful film. Well, I mean, you know, that's. There's a lot of there's a lot of athlete cameos today that leave something to be desired too. So you can't blame Lucetti. But what happens to him after that? Because how do you go from a revolutionary force in a burgeoning sport? You know, the sport continues to grow in popularity. Obviously, uh, what happens to Hank Lucetti that we just lose him? 
uh, he after he played uh, himself and played basketball and, and made the ten thousand dollar payday. You know, in those days, kind of like with Jim Thorpe when he lost all of his his Olympic medals because he. I think he got paid something like $5 to play baseball at one point or, or something. I, I, I don't know all the facts, but it was, it was something like that. The same thing happened to Lewis Eddy. He wasn't allowed to play basketball. He got suspended for a year because he was an amateur and he got paid to play basketball. It's, it's actually kind of crazy. So he didn't play. And then after that, he did play in some, in some tournaments but again, no NBA. But then he goes into the into World War II. He enlists um, in the Navy, and he contracts spiral meningitis and almost dies. You know, at that time it was a fatal disease. But they had just come up with the sulfur drugs, and the sulfur drugs were were, were kind of like cancer. They were kind of killing your whole body, and then you hoped you survived when that, all that was done. They they did kill uh, the the virus. Uh, Hank went down to like, he was six foot three, he went down to in, in the nineties in weight. And, uh, he, when he came out, it, it, it damaged his heart. The sulfur drugs damaged his heart. The doctors told him that he could no longer play competitive basketball at that level anymore. So when the NBA, uh, began officially, Ned Irish was one of the first, I think it might've been a general manager or one of the owners of the Knicks. He, he courted. Hank Lewis Eddie, because he wanted him to be on the first Nick team, but uh, he turned down uh, a lot of money uh, and and all of that because a it wasn't a healthy decision for him to you know to do. He didn't want to you know overexert himself and possibly you know die on the court. And he also if he if he didn't play up to the level that he was used to, he didn't want that to be his legacy either. So he he declined to play on the Knicks, and uh, and that's why. Uh, people never really got to see the magnificence of Hank Luisetti, son of Italian immigrants. Uh, an amazing story. It really is an amazing story. I think of the conversations around who's the greatest, and you're right. If you're not, if it's, it's not a, a apples to apples conversation, it's you know, it's like in baseball. Uh, when Roger Maris broke Babers' home run record, and then they had to put an asterisk because he had more games in the season because of the expanded season. And now, you know, Barry Bonds, does he get an asterisk because of the performance enhancing? You know, it's it's a different era, right? It's a different world. Right. And then you try to factor in, yeah, but Babe Ruth played and uh, no team was further west than St. Louis, and they, the rest of these guys traveled to California. So it's all these different factors. Right. But it's almost like the question becomes, is Hank Luisetti the Michael Jordan of the 1930s or is Michael Jordan the Hank Luisetti of the 1990s? You know, like when you're there at the beginning of the game, when you do things like create shots or ways to dribble, I mean, you fundamentally change the physics of the game. Yes. You definitely deserve consideration amongst the, the Mount Rushmore of your sport. March is all about the women on Media Set Italia. Spend International Women's Day on March 8th and all of Women's History Month with your favorite ladies from Italy. Friday nights belong to Michelle Impossibile and friends. Enjoy music, laughter, and fun with Michelle Hunziker and her lifelong friends. Monday through Friday, get your daily dose of Barbara D'Urso on her talk show, Pomeriggio Cinque. And on Sunday afternoons, don't miss the latest in celebrity news and pop culture on Verissimo with Silvia Tofanin. Plus, Buongiorno Mama Series 2 on Saturday nights, starring Maria Chiara Gianetta and Raul Bova. It's all on Mediaset Italian March, plus so much more. 
Check with your local television provider and ask about the channel today. Sure. Um, you know, and people responded to the book, you know, uh, really well. Uh, it won five awards, uh, you know, lots and lots of great reviews on on Amazon. People love the story. Uh, they just, uh, you know, it's kind of like this, you know, it's it's almost like the the team from Fairly Dickinson. You know, uh, he, he was the underdog. You know, nobody nobody knew of him. He was an unsung hero. Uh, and here he rises. He, you know, he's fighting through all of the, you know, the the other teams and you know he's not really playing basketball it's not the way it's played you know you're doing it wrong and he needed to do that and he needed to perform on the biggest stage in front of a, a crowd that was that was i mean uh, I, I don't want to give too much of the book away but the crowd was so rowdy at the beginning of the game that those those that that first team that ran out on that on that court they were absolutely shocked when they they got out there and they said suddenly we looked around and and we were and we were nervous you know and in the beginning of the game the first couple of shots you know LIU just 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 ran them right over but then you know something happens they get they get them their heads in the game and 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 they turn the tides so uh the rest is history as they say the rest is history but when you perform under those kinds of circumstances that's when you're a champion when you're able to do those kinds of things, I mean, if you could do it in practice, you know, yeah, we might be talented, but you're a champion when you're able to do it when the chips are down, when you're able to do it when it counts. Yeah. And that's what Lewis said he did. They say he was an extremely reserved person, very quiet. They said the moment he stepped foot, as soon as his foot crossed that line onto that basketball court, he became another person. They said it was a reserve you never saw. And, and, and him personally. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like DiMaggio. Yeah. Right? Like, there was a certain sense that, you know, Pat always references an article that I think is fundamental to my sense of the Italian-American experience. And it's part of what drives me in an episode like this, which is, you know, I think Italians in the early stages of American history often go unsung because, frankly, even though today the media portrayals unfortunately are you know boisterous and loud and flashy the truth is we tend to be a very quiet put your head down kind of people and especially when it comes to that kind of you know uh, barrier breaking it's a matter of just sort of like go out and perform and I think about this article in Pat what was it Life magazine 1936 I think it was 1939 Life but I'm not sure but it was definitely Life it was life. So it was either 36 or 39. Um, you know, DiMaggio's at the height of his ascendancy. And the writer writes about this profile on him. He's on the cover. It's a big photo of his face on the cover. And, he, and the takeaway at the end of the article for this writer is like, DiMaggio is not like the rest of his countrymen, you know, the, the fellow Italians. He doesn't reek of garlic and he doesn't require a pound of <laughs> spaghetti to energize before a game. And I oftentimes think to myself, like, I knew people who knew Joe DiMaggio well. It's a myth that he only had one friend who was his lawyer. I know plenty of people who knew him very well. He loved pasta quesada. That was his favorite dish from what I understand. Um, he did nothing to shy away from his Italianness, and I'm sure neither did Hank Luisetti, but it's almost like you had to be extra reserved in order to have a place at the table, you mm -hmm. know, and, mm -hmm. and sort of put your head down and work. And so there must have been a lot of weight on the shoulders of these guys 
who did self-identify with their Italianness feeling like, okay, I've got to do this for my whole community. I, I'm the only, I'm the only one that people are seeing right here, you know? Right. And, you know, you bring up a good point and I'm, and I'm glad you brought up that article, um, you know, because the media's portrayal of Italians, you know, especially the way we see in Hollywood or Italians, you know, they, they, they've reduced us to a stereotype and it, and it's been going on for over 50 years and, and Hollywood's the great teacher. Hollywood is the great influencer. You know, people from who play doctors on TV shows, they literally get fan mail from from you know from people asking them medical advice because they get so lost in the fantasy of what's happening and that's what happens in in the film business and you know what i'm trying to do is you, you know you mentioned that i'm a producer i'm i'm a screenwriter all of the characters and the stories that i write feature italians in roles that are opposite to the stereotype because i want to present an organic truthful version of who Italians actually are. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, they show the same stereotypes. You know, I mean, my father was was a laborer. Uh, you know, my uncles were laborers and my, you know, my son's a union guy. And I have, no, you know, my one of my best friends growing up is, you know, a successful plumber and his brother's a mechanic. And I have no issue at all with Italian because Italians are extremely handy and, and, you know, as a race, we're creative. But, you know, the only way they ever show Italians is with a pizza maker, with a carpenter. Um, you know, we Italians have Nobel Prize winning physicists, you know, Enrico Fermi and, you know, uh, you know, uh, Marconi, you know, the great. I mean, I can go on and on and on. I speak about this. I talk about Italian stereotyping. Um, you know, I've talked in, you know, lots of venues from here and Cleveland and, you know, around the country. Um, so I'm trying to show Italians, show the real version of Italians in the stories that I do and in the movies that I will make and plan to make. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your, you know, you, you set out to be in film and that evolved into writing, which has been successful for you. And uh, you've always kept the Italian experience and a, and a positive version of it at the forefront of what you do. So you're now evolving kind of back in to focus on film, you've got a new initiative, right? You want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah, actually, uh, I've been working on this for for quite a few years now, and I finally it, it's it, it's right now happening. Uh, I created a company called uh, Little Italy Films, and I could read the mission statement to you because it pretty much says everything that I want to accomplish. And it's, it's LIF is committed to changing the way Italians and Italian Americans are portrayed in the film industry through a steady stream of realistic, positive, mainstream films featuring Italian characters in either leading or cameo roles. That's the goal. Uh, my second book, uh, Being Brothers, is going to be the first movie that we are going to make. Um, that's the one that we are gearing up toward, you know, mostly in part because it is the it is the it's the simplest one to make. You know, if we you know, madness is certainly on our ledger, but in order to do madness, you know, you're talking about a lot of green screen, you know, you have to recreate Madison Square Garden in nineteen thirty-six and you know, it's it's a it's a hefty budget. Um, but being brothers is set in the seventies and it takes place in the Bronx. We don't need the big stadiums. Uh, there's a lot more we can do with that. Um, but we want to make one film every year that represents the Italian people, like I said, in an organic positive way a way that's opposite it's important to the italian people we need to get this message out there and the way to do it is through the media 
we need to produce these kinds of films. Now, I know there are films that are made, but a lot of them aren't mainstream. You know, they're little films. My goal is for my films to be mainstream films. I want them to be in theaters. I want them to be on cable. And that's the goal that we're headed toward. And that's the goal that I'm, I'm not going to settle for anything less. That's no, very admirable of you. I think that that's an important goal to have. And uh, I, I think, you know, I'm finding like we interviewed a young lady named Taylor Taglianetti who has an Italian-American film institute that she created. Mm-hmm. We've worked with the Russo brothers who created the Russo brothers Italian-American Film Forum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we've gotten to a point of sophistication as a community where people are realizing, you know, you're never going to do away with the mafia genre because, frankly, it's lucrative. And some of them are very good films. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that a lot here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are in the places of influence and places of creative influence now where we can start to make the kinds of portrayals that we want to see. And it's taken a long time. I remember having a conversation with Vinny Pastore, who was an actor from The Sopranos, amongst other things. And he came to an IF event I did. And, you know, some people saw him and they had a difficult time with the idea that one of the actors from The Sopranos was there. And him and I were talking about it. And he said, you know, look, I'm an actor, right? And Mm -hmm. I look like what I look like and I sound like what I sound like. And I got to feed my family. I'm not getting offers for Shakespeare. He's like, but I would say to all of these influential Italian-Americans in the room who want to spit on me, you've got all these resources. Why don't you go out and finance a movie about uh, Vince Lombardi. I could play Vince Lombardi, you know. Mm-hmm. Why don't you go out and put the portrayals that you want to see on film as opposed to just criticizing those of us who, you know, we're, we're working. And and I totally understood what he was saying, and I, I could not disagree with him. This is the responsibility of a community, especially one that has influential people in the creative businesses. It's our time to put together the portrayals we want to see. And so it's, it's admirable that you have focused on that for such a long time, and it's admirable that you're doing it here with the books and hopefully the films. I thank you, and I, and I agree with that statement completely. I agree. Um, some of the greatest films that were ever made, you know, were, you know, I mean, The Godfather and, and A Bronx Tale, and, you know, I mean, these are masterpieces, and, and I have no issue with it. The only issue I have is that it's the only way we're portrayed. That's the problem. That's the issue, and that's what needs to be fixed by, you know, a pot, you know, you need to have, uh, you know, equal to, or at least, you know, I mean, I was a teacher for years. You, you cannot teach people, you know, I can't teach a class a lesson on something on, on, you know, on, on a certain part of speech and then give them a test on it two years later. Right. You, you know, things need to be reinforced along the way. And this is what my goal is. And, I'm hoping that people reach out to me from this podcast, you know, to, 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 I think you're going to have my information on there. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly have you linked on all of the show pages and stuff like that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So anybody who wants to join the crusade and wants to come along and, and, and make this path with me, I, I welcome you to come and to join. Let's, let's do this. Let's, let's make it happen. Yeah. Well, it's an admirable pursuit. It really is. And it's, uh, wonderful to me that you've fallen so deeply into these amazing stories and i am completely fascinated by luisetti's story i'm definitely rooting for this to be one of the projects that you bring to fruition on the screen because i think it's super important and uh i think the more that we can speak to people in a humble way about the successes that are at the 
heart of our community story, the better it's going to be for all of us and the better it's going to be for the future of self-identification and the future generations who have role models to look to. Uh, and it takes that, you know, the movie industry is a great way to do it. I, I think always back to my time as a young person when I first joined the board of the Sports Hall of Fame in Chicago, the Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame, and I got to know through the late, great George Randazzo, who was like a grandfather to me, I got to know a lot of amazing athletes, and George was like a truffle dog searching out Italians and Italian-Americans who were oftentimes completely unknown but who had been the biggest in their game or, or influential in their game in their own time. And one of the people he introduced me to before he died, he was in his 90s, was Louis Zamperini, who was a very successful track and field star in college out of Torrance, California, then went to the Olympics, then went and served in World War II, was shot down in the Pacific, survived alone on a raft for, I think, a month, was captured by the Japanese, survived a POW camp in Japan in the most absolutely horrible circumstances, and then eventually became a preacher, went back to Japan to preach about forgiveness. And this gentleman, Louis Zamperini, was actually invited to light the Olympic torch in Nagano. I forget what year that was, 98, something like that. And right before he died, a book that was written about him called uh, Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand was made into a movie directed by Angelina Jolie. And, you know, here, after 70 years, whatever it was then, 60 years, this amazing amazing story really almost like made for the screen finally came out and got disseminated to people all over the world because that's the medium that people consume is is, is film and cinema and uh I, I think you're on a very very noble mission to make sure that more of it reflects the best of us thank you thank you i appreciate that i'm uh, very excited to uh to finally you know get my boots on the ground with this yeah i've been i've been prepping i've been preparing for years so now it's finally right in front of me. Well, measure measure twice, cut once. They say it's the best way to do it, so prep is never a bad thing. Uh, before we go, uh, we are going to link to the book, and we're going to link to your uh, information on the show page. Everybody can get out and get in touch with you and uh, get the book and, and support uh, an Italian-American author because that's a big part of what we do. Uh, but I would like to ask, the tournament, um, the, the current March Madness tournament is out there. Do you have a team you're rooting for? Billy Dickinson. There you go. FDU. You can't Good go for you. That. Absolutely not. <laughs> so Jersey points, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to yeah. shoot in Jersey. That's that's where we're kind of looking to go. But but anyway, it's uh, you know it's that underdog. You know, yeah. there's, there's something about the underdog, right? I mean, we, we love Rocky for that reason. Yeah, we love uh, you know it's the underdog coming up. And I would choose Jersey over Hollywood any day of the week. <laughs> don't they have like mountain lions didn't they have the mountain lions we don't have any mountain lions no we don't I'm shocked Pat you're not saying this but Jersey was the original Hollywood it was Fort Lee Fort Lee was the original Hollywood yeah Fort Lee was where everybody was filming all the studios were until I don't know they up and moved uh, out west I mean you can't argue the weather they moved out west because what was happening was out west they could film all year yeah mm -hmm. when movies went big and they, they could do a whole year of filming that makes sense. Yeah, I was just reading the whole thing about how Fort Lee was the original Hollywood and uh, the Palisade Cliffs stood in for mountains everywhere and there was places in Fort Lee where a, a director could take a camera, put it in one corner and turn 90 degrees each way and get different shots. So you'd have, you know... Yeah, John Barrymore. Yeah, a lot of them. Was part of that, that big Fort Lee movie movement. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, so Jersey, 
the garden was a jersey makes That's and the world true. takes so jersey made hollywood and <laughs> now now it's time to take it back was that trenton something like that i think trenton makes and the world takes it but that's close trenton enough. makes the world takes yeah that's a capital. Yeah, it's the capital right yeah sure yeah, it gives good coverage but at this point if new jersey made hollywood it's time for the italian american that very italian american state to take it back and give these portrayals to the people because they're so important and uh these are wonderful stories if you're out there enjoying march madness right now Hopefully the team you favor is doing well. If you really want to dig deep into the experience and the Italian-American route at the heart of the tournament and what might just be one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived that no one's heard of, you got to go out. you got to get Madness by Mike DeLucia. It's a fantastic read and one that I know is going to make a much, much deeper experience for you, the Italian-American fan, during March Madness. So we hope you go out and get it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Be great. See that you're born in Italiano.